We're starting a new journey today. We're beginning something new. We're beginning a new story. It's like we've got a brand new book, paper, journal. I love journaling, and I love the first thing that you, like when you get a brand new journal and you open it up and it's like fresh and new and there's just blank pages all the way through, and you're like, I wonder what I'm going to fill this in with. And I think it's exciting that we are doing that as a community this morning. And it's one of those journeys that we haven't, uh, kind of set out on ourselves and gone, we're going to decide for ourselves what we're going to do. This is something that God has orchestrated for us. And so I'm excited that God is speaking and moving amongst us and that we he's opened doors for us and he's, he's closed other doors, but he's opened doors for us. And it's just really cool that he's led us in such a way. And so I'm very excited. And I think of uh, this saying, right, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step or with a first step. And so as I've been thinking and praying about today, particularly, I've been asking myself, what should that first step be? How should we begin? How should we start the story? What should be the first page that we write down in that journal? What would be appropriate? How might we embody what God wants us to do as his group of people here? There are all sorts of questions. And then I remembered wonderful song, Actually, it was Gabriella who reminded me from The Sound of Music, all right, that great movie. Um, I didn't know that that was the highest grossing movie of all time at one stage until Jaws came along, but there you go. Um, and it's that song, Do Re Mi, right? You guys know that song? Yeah, it's a very famous song. Does anyone remember the first two lines of that song? It's a very good place to start. That's right. So I always remember that. I think that's wisdom there. When we begin something, we should start at the very beginning. We should start at the right place, and we make sure we have everything in order. So we have to start with what is the most important thing? What is that thing that comes before everything else? Well, the good news is that Jesus has answered that question for us. And if you want to go into the Bible, to the passage that we're going to be looking at today, you can go to Mark 12. That's where Jesus answers that question for us. And he's asked that question by someone else, and we're going to look at his answer this morning and apply it to our own lives and to our fellowship here. So we want to set the scene for you. And the first thing is that Jesus has traveled, this is half, almost just over halfway through Mark's gospel towards the end in chapter 12. And he's traveled up to Jerusalem for the last kind of week, two weeks of his life. And he's in Jerusalem and he's in the temple and he's teaching. And all of his enemies are there. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, all of these people, the, the teachers of the law, they're all there and they all come together and form this really weird alliance because they don't even like each other but they really don't like Jesus. And so they form this alliance and they want to get rid of him. And so they, they decide they're going to send people to ask him questions, to test him, to try and trip him up, to try and get him to say something that they can, you know, in front of all the crowds that they can say, look, he said this, this is terrible. We need to get rid of him. And really all that happens, this big long section in chapter 11 and 12, all that happens is we get a good amount of teaching about different things from Jesus and they get put in their place. And if you want to know how to debate someone, you can study those, those um, passages. But there's questions about paying tax, questions about the resurrection, questions about Jesus' authority and all of that sort of thing. And in the midst of it, someone just sitting around watching gets really impressed with Jesus and he asks Jesus 
this question. And it's a question that a lot of uh, debate had been going. It's kind of like their how many angels could dance on the head of a pin sort of question. You know, It's one of their philosophical questions of the day. What is the greatest commandment? And there's all these debates around. And we actually have a lot of uh, other answers that people gave uh, from the first century BC and the first century AD, so around the time of Jesus, to that question. And the, the question really was, what, not what is the most when they say most important, not what, it, what is the one that's above all the others, but what's the one that summarizes everything and flows, everything else flows out of that commandment. And so here's some of them very quickly, right? This is a rabbi in the first century BC. He said, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. Now you might recognize that. Uh, that's the negative of something else. Love your neighbor as yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your paths straight. All of life is summed up by the Torah, sacrificial worship, and expressions of love. And then the righteous will live by his faith. That's from Habakkuk. You recognize some of those. Those are Bible verses. Uh, Even that first one that's not a Bible verse from the Old Testament now kind of is in our uh, New Testament scriptures. Um, but it's, it's a debate that happened a lot at the time, and Jesus has an answer prepared for this. He's obviously aware that it was happening, and so he takes um, two commandments from the Old Testament, from two different books, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and he puts them together into the greatest commandment, what he calls the greatest commandment. And we're going to look at the first part of that today. So we want to go in the right direction. We've got to start in the right place, and we want these two things to be our foundations. That gonna Because if we get the foundation right, everything else will flow out from there, and we will uh, flow in the direction that God has intended the church to go from the beginning, from Acts 1.8. You know, be witnesses in where we are, the surrounding areas, and out to the ends of the earth to exist for God and to bring others into relationship with him. And so the starting point that Jesus gives us, and you guys will know these commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus starts with this one, right? Love God. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. Um, It's all about God and worship of God. And this has to be the starting point for us. This has to be the orientation of our lives. This is the basis of the Christian faith. God has to be at the bottom. He's the bedrock of all that it is. You think about it in this way, like kind of like a foundation. You know, you see buildings being built, I mean, out in, um, around Stonefields and um, GI, there's buildings being built all the time, and you can see them working on the foundations and, and like, you know, plowing away at the, at the ground to get a good foundation. And if you think of your life like a building, and you dig down to the lowest level of the building, what is your whole life resting on? What is the foundation? What is the thing that's supposed to take the stress of that building and that life? That's a big question to ask, but it's an important one because whatever the foundation is, that's responsible for holding up your whole life, for giving your life meaning and giving it direction. And if it's not God, if he's not at the foundation, then it's got to be something else. There will be something down there, but Is that thing, whatever it is, able to stand up under the sheer weight of giving meaning to your entire life, to every second of your day? That's a that's a big weight to bear. Like 
to be in that place of giving your own life meaning, that's a hard thing to do. I certainly don't want to do that because the only thing or person that's appropriate really to take that weight is the one who created all things, who holds all things together. Because he holds the cosmos, one life, while it's a big deal, is not difficult for him. And the cool thing is he actually wants to be that foundation. He wants to be the starting point for your life. He wants to do that work for you and to be the direction that you, the one who sets the direction for your life. So as we're starting this journey together, as we start off in a new direction, we want this to be our foundation as well, our love for God together as a people. That's why Christiani said we just hear a group of people who come to love Jesus, to worship him with all our heart. We're here because that's what our foundation is. We're brought together from all different walks of life, from all corners of the globe even, and we're drawn together by our love for Jesus. So we want to get that right. That's got to be the first thing. Because you imagine building a house and having your foundation slightly off. Not enough that you notice it when you've laid the foundation, but maybe you notice it when you're almost at the end of building the house and you're like, oh no, this foundation is not going to hold up. I have to start again. You know, that's not what we want to do. We want to start out. We don't want to have to relay a foundation. We want to get the foundation right. And so we're here to say that we want to, first of all, love God. And we want to love God in the way that he wants to be loved. And that's important because God uh, speaks a language. I don't know if you guys have heard of this book, right? The Five Love Languages, Gary Chapman, great book. But he lays it out like this, that he says there's essentially five different languages or ways that people receive love. And, uh, you know, there's lots of them, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, gifts. I can't remember what the last one is. I'm sure you guys can... Yell it out if it's one of your love languages. But the idea is that you receive love in those ways. And if someone tries to show you love, say it was quality time and you felt loved by having someone spend quality time with you, but someone tried to show you love by giving you lots of gifts, you wouldn't be able to receive it because it's not your love language. It's the same with God. God has a way that he says, this is the way that I want you to love me. And if you don't love me this way, I can't receive it. It's not going to be taken as love. And so love in the Bible is not a feeling. It's an action. It's the way that we do things. It's the things that we do in themselves. Because if it was a feeling, Jesus certainly couldn't tell us to love our enemies because you can't feel nice feelings for someone you don't like. (laughs) So love is not always to do with our feelings. It's a disposition towards us. We're going to look at this next week when it comes to loving others. But we want to understand how we are to love God, then Jesus tells us. How are we supposed to love God? That's the question. He tells us we are to love God with several different facets of who we are, with several different parts of our lives. But they are, make up the whole person. And that's really what Jesus is getting at here. We love him with our whole person or from our whole person. There's a nuance in that word when it says you love him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your... So it's not just with as in I just give you my heart or my soul or my mind, but it's I use those things to love you. So it's using the resources of those things to love God. So not just saying I love you with all my mind, 
but it's using your mind in such a way that you love God. So the first one is our heart. And when we talk about the heart and when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about just our emotions, the, the place where we feel things. It is that, but it's more than that as well. The, the, the heart, the way, the way that we use heart in English is a bit off from where the way the Bible uses it. I think the closest you would get is to say that you, like someone, when you're talking about an issue, they got to the heart of the issue, right? That would be the way you talk about it. Or, oh, I've just gone down to the heart of the South Island, right? You've gone down into the middle, right into the depths, right into the center of that place. That's the way the Bible uses heart when it comes to talk about us. It's not our organ and it's not just our emotions. It's the very core of who we are. It's like the control center. It's where all of our decisions, all of our passions, all of our um, kind of the seat of control in our lives. And so that's what we're talking about when Jesus says, love the Lord your God using all of your heart, with all of the resources at the center of who you are, all of your decision-making, emotive, passionate faculty, that's the place where you love God from. That's the place where you lift Jesus up as Lord and you live as children of God. Turn the center of who you are towards him. If you want an example of someone who was not like that, Well, actually, a contrasting example. You can look at the parable of the prodigal son. The son lived from that place. The prodigal lived from that place of being a son, right? He accepted and his whole desire. Once he'd received that forgiveness and that mercy and that acceptance from his father, he lived that out from his heart, from his whole being. But the older brother who had lived there all his life and had done the things that his father had asked him to do his heart the center of who he was was actually far away it wasn't turned towards his father and you can tell when his when his brother comes back he's like gets all grumpy he's like oh you never did this for me and rah 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 and you can tell that his heart probably was actually far away where his brother had been spending all his money and his inheritance and maybe actually that's what he wanted to do so his heart was turned away from his father And we don't want to be like that, doing the right things, but having our actual heart, the center of who we are, focused on something else. Oh, I'm here at church, but man, I'd rather be going doing this other thing. Um, But I'm going to do it because God told me, and I'm going to do it grumpily, you know. That's not the way that God asks us to love him with our whole heart from all of the center of who we are. When you do this, it's like setting your compass on that, north that magnetic north and getting it set there and you'll never be truly lost if you always have that compass set to that true north of loving God and so if we're gathering here that means that God is at the center of what we do and of who we are and our our decisions are passed through the filters and discernment of what he asks us to do and we orient ourselves towards him so we can go down the path that he's called us to so then we have the soul and you kind of go, what, what is the soul? Because it's very ethereal, these things. So your heart and your soul. What's Jesus talking about when he talks about the soul? Well, he's talking about the thing that gives us life, our vitality, our energy in a way. All right? You think about the thing that animates the body. In the Genesis account of the creation of man, Adam is uh, just a shell, a husk, just a form, like a statue, until God breathes into him the breath of life, the soul, and gives him, makes him a living 
being, and the soul is the thing that carries the energies that carry out the dictates of the command center. So we have the heart that tells us, you makes a decision, and then the soul is the action part of that. It's the vitality. So in order to love God with all our soul, we are attempting to spend all of our energy for the purposes of God for us. A great example from Scripture, from church history, is the Apostle Paul. Right? He is energetic for one thing and one thing only, right? to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to spread the good news as far through the world as he can. It was a driving motivator for his whole life. And nothing was going to stop him from doing that. And you can read in Second Corinthians about all of the, um, the persecution, all of the horrible stuff that happened to him, the beatings, the shipwreckings, the, the stonings, the being left for dead, all of those things. The only way they could stop him was to chop his head off, okay? That's the only way that they managed to stop him because all of his life's energy, his whole soul, everything was directed to doing the one thing that God had called him to do. So if we want to do that, then we need to commit our energy, our uh, vitality to carrying out what God has called us to do. Straining forward to reach the call of God for us. And to do this as well, we need to love God with all our mind. And this, again, is the rational faculty of uh, of our selves. And in today's world, this is quite a big deal because... Um, people ask lots of curly questions about faith. You know, like, oh, God is good and all-powerful. You know, the classic one, how come there's evil and suffering in the world? Or how can a God who's all good send someone to, to hell? Why does Jesus have these ethical demands on us? Why can't I do whatever I want? Doesn't evolution disprove the existence of God? There's answers for all of these questions, but we need to expend and spend our mind on grasping those answers. We need to exercise them, because otherwise, if we can't give satisfactory answers to these questions, then people go, well, clearly, I'm smarter than you, and I know more than you, and you don't know, and obviously, God's too small for me. Your God's too small, because he can't answer these questions. And so, We have to train our minds. We have to expand our minds. We have to exercise our minds. Because what if one of our neighbors comes to us and asks us about evolution? Oh, what do you think about evolution? Or what do you think about evidence? Why do you think God exists? You know, or maybe they ask you about a thorny moral issue like euthanasia or using marijuana. How do you engage in that dialogue with them in a way that honors God and will actually provide an answer to them? You do it by exercising your mind by loving God with all of your minds. The writings of the New Testament and the early church writings after that that survive show us that the Christians who lived at that time loved God with all their minds so much so that they outthought most of the people around them. I listened to this podcast. It's called The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. And the idea, it's been going for about six years, and he's up to about the 1800s because he started at about 500 BC and he's talking about every philosopher that ever existed and he got to about 100 AD to about 15, 1600 and every philosopher that he talked about from that point was a Christian philosopher. The only philosophy that we have that survives from that period is Christian 
philosophy because these guys were thinking and writing and wrestling with these hard questions, even to the point that the stuff that we inherit as what we think is just normal, like the scientific method and the rules of logic and all of these things, these come down to us from Christian philosophers. And they set the stage for the innovation and the exploration and the world that we live in today. And so we need to be committed to do that as well, to think deeply about our faith and how it affects our lives and how it affects the world around us. One commentator ended his section on uh, this particular thing by saying, God has no use for lazy minds. We don't just love God with these ethereal kind of otherworldly, insubstantial things. He also tells us to love God with all our strength. Our strength here is not just talking about our physical body. So I love God by lifting chairs or I love God by going to the gym or whatever it is. It's um, the stuff that we are able to do physically, but also the stuff that we are able to have done. So... Uh, in this kind of definition of the word, even our possessions, even the, the things, the people that work for us, the, the, the connections that we have, those are all part of our strength. It means that we can use every physical thing that we have to love God. We can do all things to the glory of God, which is awesome. And that's what we want to do. We want to do all things. A great example of this sort of thing, loving God with all our strength, comes just after this at the end of Mark chapter 12, where you get the story of the widow coming to the temple, and she puts into the offering box all that she has to live on. And she has given all of her strength, all of her resources to God. The fact that it's money isn't important. It could have been something else. She could have given away food or Um, clothing or something like that. It's the fact that it was everything. It was her strength, the thing that she, you know, relied on to kind of turn the lever of her life so that she could survive was given over to God. And that's what Jesus is really getting at here, as I said at the start. All of these facets together make up the entirety, the totality of who we are, of what it means to be a person in this world. So all of who we are, every part of our lives, every second of our lives. And that's kind of a scary thing when you think about it, that Jesus, you know, he just demands everything, every second, every thought, every action, every little thing that we do is supposed to be poured out as an offering for Jesus. And so for us to gather together, that means that we want all that we do together to declare to God that we love him. We want to worship him the way that he prescribes. We want to love him with all that we have. And so this is our first responsibility before anything else. We're responsible to God to lay all that we have down before him and say, this is all because I love you. And the thing is, it's all done in response to what God has already done for us. It's not done so that we can earn anything, so we can put it down and say, God, look how good I am. Can you love me now? It's done because he already has loved us. We know that we can't earn God's love. We have to allow that gospel to minister to our soul, that actually we can't. We fall far short of the standard that God sets for us. We're never going to measure up on our own, but we are able to be transformed from the heart, from the center of who we are, from that control center can be redirected towards God and transformed into new people.
people because Jesus has made a way. So God's love for us in giving all he had, his very life, to ransom and rescue us, all that we could do in response is to give all we have to him. And that's, that's exactly what he wants. One of C.S. Lewis's uh, mentors, although I don't think they ever met in person, I think um, he just you know, read his works and considered him to be a great influence, it was a guy called George MacDonald. And he wrote this, God is so beautiful and so patient and so loving and so generous that he is the heart and soul and rock of every love and every kindness and every gladness in the world. All the beauty in the world and in the hearts of men, all the painting, all the poetry, all the music, all the architecture comes out of his heart first. He is so lovable that no heart can know how lovable he is, can know only in part. When the best loves God best, he does not love him nearly as he, God, deserves or as he will love God in time. That's the sort of love that God is after, the, the, the love that just pours out the best that we can, that recognizes everything is from God and everything flows back to God through us. And then once we do that, once that's set in, in the right direction, once our compass is set and the, the magnet has drawn our needle to the correct place, then out of that flows our love for those people around us, our neighbors. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And we're going to do, if you want to read ahead, you can read uh, in Luke's gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan, because that's what follows this. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, the teacher of the law says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him that story. But loving God with all that we are opens up to us the freedom of living exactly in obedience to his will. And that's what we want. We want to live the way that God wants us to live. We want to honor him with all that we are because he is worthy of that. So let's pray this morning that we'll be able to do that as we come to respond.